1: On this episode of the Family Business Voice, we speak to Philip Grindle about what it means to be safe in the digital age. Philip's background as a Scotland Yard detective and his work in British intelligence gives him an in-depth view on just what can threaten our safety. And now he's applying those insights to the world of private security, helping business owners, politicians, and other high-profile clients stay safe, both online and in person. Enjoy this episode with Philip. Philip, one of the main things that occurred to me to ask myself as a question, once I realized what it is that you do, what it is that you're an expert in, is whether I actually have a definition for what safety means, what feeling safe means in the 21st century. And it's been something that's been bothering me because I really don't have a clear-cut answer to that because naturally... Things have changed for our societies, especially over the last 20 years, quite radically. And I never really bothered, I think, to take the time to define how that impacts our sense of safety or what makes us feel safe in the broader picture, now that all of these channels are available to us. So I thought that might be a really nice way for us to start our conversation at a more philosophical level, I guess,
2: (laughs) I think safety means different things to different people. When we think about safety and we think about risk, you know, if we look at risk, we have a term where we call it about, you know, your tolerance of risk, you know, and we will have a different one. So I've got a quite high tolerance of risk because I spent most of my life in those environments. My wife will have a very different tolerance of risk because she hasn't worked in those environments. And in the same respect, I think my feeling of safety will be different to yours and different to everyone else's. So I think it's a very personal experience. But ultimately, I think safety and feeling safe, because I think we're talking about feeling safe rather than being safe. Because I think they're, you know we've, we've talked before and they're two very different things. And certainly from my perspective, in terms of what we're trying to do at Diffuse, it's much as it about feeling safe. And I think that's about free from anxiety around something that you consider to be a threat. Now, if you feel unsafe, and by that you mean you're worrying about what's on the internet or you're worrying about somebody getting information about you or you're worrying about some external demise to you based on what's coming out the internet, then you feel unsafe. And I think if you therefore don't have those experiences and therefore you're not worrying about. Somebody approaching you in the street, you're not worrying about somebody sending you something horrible on the internet, you're not worrying about there being personal information out there about you. And when you open your door and you walk out, there's no change of emotion in terms of you're not suddenly becoming really vigilant. Then that is going some way, I think, to feeling safe.
1: So I love that you made the distinction between feeling safe and actually being safe a large part of our discussion today is going to revolve around is your family business safe like not just on an individual level but as an organization are you actually safe and you know if we look at that distinction and say like okay so you might feel safe but you might not be safe as a business as an organization as an enterprise what do you think are the most common weaknesses that you come across that people tend to underestimate in their organizational armor, if you will, to safeguard themselves against cybercrime or any other types of threats?
2: The key difference, I think, that's probably worth talking about is what we do at Diffuse is we're dealing with humans. So when people talk about cyber, they often think, you know, what comes into their mind is technology, and they're thinking about hacking and and, and viruses and all those sort of things. And they are all genuine and real threats and things that certainly in terms of private offices and organizations are a a very significant concern. But if you take a step back from that, at some point, there is a human involved. There's a human at one end who is sending all that sort of stuff or or switching it on. And then there's a human at the other end that is allowing it in by either doing something silly, like opening a link that they really know they shouldn't do. Or otherwise, and so so what we deal with is humans. Very often, I see businesses operating on a perspective of compliance, as opposed to risk. And I see this particularly when we're talking about recruitment and management of staff. So when people recruit, they go through a due diligence process. What they're really looking for, if they're honest with themselves, is kind of confirmation of their own decision. They're looking at does that person's CV and LinkedIn profile and references all match up?
0: Mm.
2: Now, very few people will give you a reference or give you the details of a referee, shall we say, that's going to be negative. So, you know, generally speaking, you kind of think, okay, well, what's the value in that? Actually, we look at references and we look at that process from a risk assessment perspective. So rather than when this person said they've got a master's degree in X, Y and Z, have they? We're looking at what threat or risk does this person pose to your organization if successfully recruited? Now, some of that may be something they are not aware of. To recruit a a senior executive is an expensive process. And also, you're going to pay that individual a healthy salary and bonuses and what have you. And you're going to entrust into that individual the reputation and success of your organization. So why would you not want to actually know more about that individual? Not what they've told you, but what actually is out there, and even sometimes what they don't know. So we look at it from a perspective of, OK, well, let's, let's look at the relationships this person has. Let's look at the kind of network analysis of who this person is connected to, because you probably would want to know if actually they're connected to somebody who's a significant competitor of yours. But I think we also need to recognise that people change, people's views change, people's relationships change, people's beliefs and priorities change. So we do, for instance, we do a monitoring process. Now, what we don't do is monitor your social media. We're not we're not looking at all your personal messages and wondering, you know, snooping into your life. But what we are doing is we are we are making certain certain parameters and certain keywords that if they are mentioned. there's an alert not because you're necessarily going to take it down or anything else but again it might be somewhere that somebody's retweeted and the individual probably doesn't even may not even know it's there or or may not understand the context based on how that fits into your organization's values but again as we're in this era now where reputation is everything you know if you are in a family office or if you are in an organization and you make certain comments they may have a direct impact on the reputation of the family, the organisation, and your career, and so I think you know we need to be monitoring uh, what's happening at, at certain levels of the business, so that we can be made aware when things change, or be made aware when something does happen that may cause us a risk.
1: What's interesting about this is that in a cyber physical world you're still terming actually that the human is still the greatest source of the threat which is quite interesting to me because i think we've started talking about these threats more in terms of the technologies that but the technologies remain the tools right like to yeah, to yeah. execute these threats and or to execute malicious behavior but let's talk about the role of technology in all of this really how do we create a healthy relationship with technology in this context
2: well, I think the first thing I'd say is it's neither a friend nor a foe. It's, it's kind of both. And I go back to my point about it depends on people and how people use it. Mm. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have compliance. We should have compliance. Absolutely, governance and compliance are key aspects of any successful organization. And so some of those aspects come into this bit around governance and, and compliance of how we use technology. And so, you know, for instance, there's some really simple things like, you know, we go to conferences. These days, and sometimes you see people giving out branded memory sticks. No one should go near them. You know, no one should ever pick up a memory stick and put it in your computer. But people still do, and you know, people still click onto emails which are in the junk file. These are all human issues that allow Mm -hmm. technology to cause us problems. And equally, I mean, I'm going through a process myself where I'm I'm moving uh, platforms in terms of my who's managing my emails, and I'm relying on humans to help me do that, And and it's. you know, you think it'd be really simple, but it, it, it's not. Now, I don't have the technological skills, nor the time to do it. So we rely on other people to help us in these things. So again, it comes down to humans doing things. Um, But I think we have to have a healthier relationship with technology because, you know, the idea that you don't work with technology is just the fallacy. Now, we are communicating now because of technology. Everything we do is based on a technological interaction particularly under the current climate with the pandemic around the world and that have you where you know if we, if we went back I'm trying to work out now sort of 25 30 years you know and we had the same pandemic we wouldn't be communicating with anyone we'd be writing letters to each other and and that would be it you know we so we have to recognise how important a part that is in our life and we can't see it as a threat. I, I think if we see it as a threat it becomes a threat. It's just mm-hmm. something we need to manage. And if everyone you know followed all the rules then technology would pose less of a threat to us because we wouldn't be giving it the opportunities and there wouldn't be the vulnerabilities. So I think again, it's about those kind of, that. that is where compliance comes in.
1: The family's reputation is so directly linked with the business's reputation and like it has a huge impact on it. So like, what do you see more often? Do you see more often that it's actually the behavior of a shareholder that represents a threat to the enterprise itself or is it the other way around, like people at a certain wealth level get a lot of negative attention and potentially get, you know, blackmailed and threatened and that kind of thing? What what scenario crops up the mo- more often? And how do you deal with each one respectively?
2: So I tend to deal with things in the perspective of insider threats and outsider threats.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So internal and external threats. And if you certainly we're talking about internal threats, and, and you know, and that includes a family member or somebody in the organization of significance whose behavior causes an issue. You know, when we're looking at internal threats, they, it, they rarely happen without some sort of grievance or some sort of issue emerging. Mm. You know, it's when someone doesn't get the promotion they wanted or the bonus they wanted or they've, they've been disciplined or they've lost a deal or, or something's happened that's caused them to change their loyalty and their trust to the organization. You yes. know, we rarely see, we you know, we do see, but we rarely see somebody whose motivation for joining the organisation is as an insider threat. That That's kind of mm-hmm. fairly rare still, you know, thankfully. So I think, you know, on the insider piece, I think, again, it's about communication. It's about understanding that when somebody does have a setback, they may be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that's when they may need you know to, to have an arm around them and brought back into the fold or to unt- have a bit of, more of a conversation around yes you didn't get this but you know let's talk about it let's see how we can progress from here and you know I think when we've looked at insider threats very often there tends to be a catalyst for why that's happened and mm-hmm. that catalyst has been ignored. Uh, now sometimes it's external in terms of there's a family breakdown or there is a debt issue or there is some other issue. But again, I think if you know your staff or you know your family, you get to understand those issues. Then if you look at the external threats and you look at what's coming in you know from elsewhere in terms of the threats that you're seeing, yeah, we get quite a bit of that. And I think we're going to see more of it. I think that's going to be an increasingly regular pattern for a number of different reasons. I predicted some time ago that we will see a backlash, certainly within the UK, economically from COVID. Because at the moment, for instance, in the UK, we have this furlough system, which we've extended now to October this year, I think. But when that finishes, a huge amount of people are going to be made redundant because they will know the, the organizations will no longer be able to afford to keep them, potentially. Now, those people will feel left behind very often, and they'll watch as those the organizations they no longer work with begin to flourish again and the bonuses start to get paid again. And within that cohort of ex employees, you will get some that become quite hostile.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And we've already started to deal with this in terms of hostile ex-employees. And they will then start to target senior people in your organisation, even if that senior person wasn't there at the time when they were made redundant. And so that's where we're seeing a great deal of external threats from. And We're also going to see, I think, increasingly threats to organisations and family businesses from increasing activist businesses. Increasing activist movements around around some big subjects around energy. You know, we're moving out of so sort of very often moving away from some of the old energy sources of oil and, and gas, et cetera, and moving to sort of cleaner energy in many ways. And so people have very strong views about some of these things, and they will target those organizations who they don't consider are complying with their perspective on how quickly this should be happening. And so we see lots of external threats coming in from that direction. So I think there's two separate elements there. And they require a different response.
1: And I think that's also the reality I think that many of us already face. And maybe also that's not being communicated because I think, especially when it comes to the external threats, I think the person under threat or like the, you know, whoever gets threatened or whoever gets picked basically for the threat, there's a sense of, it's a very overwhelming situation to deal with, right? Like, so, and I mean, how do you respond? How seriously do you take it? Like, you know, there are certain things that I, I firmly believe that can and should be ignored, but then there's others that you shouldn't, right? Like, as you also point out, like, there definitely are things that are to be taken seriously, because how do you know whether someone is at that breaking point where it becomes really dangerous?
2: So, okay, so if I start from the beginning, I I would make the argument that there are different types of dangers. So there is the physical threat, there is the reputational threat, and there is the psychological threat. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, I think most organisations need to encourage a culture where they recognise that these threats exist mm-hmm. and they recognise that that needs to be part of the conversation around senior people's experience of, of having this incoming. Now, the truth is that my experience has been that most senior members of staff often never see what's coming in. It's filtered through their, their you know, chief, their executive, their PA, however their structure set up. Where I see things going wrong very often is that there's an assumption and a reliance that if there is an internal security department, they will deal with what's going on.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Trouble is, very often, they've got no idea what's going on because the administrative staff, for want of a better phrase, haven't been trained and don't know what to look for. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And therefore, when they're seeing communication coming in, they are unable to identify what might be dangerous. And what might be just the ramblings of a unhappy or mad person, I would make the argument that most security professionals are unskilled in dealing with those or interpreting those scenarios because it's a specialism. Um, and, and therefore, I think it's good to have an external, I would say this, obviously, but it's good to have an external consultant that you can refer to. So that's that's one of the things that we do for a lot of our clients is train them and then, and then we're there should they need to sort of run stuff by us. But equally, I think, you know, I don't know how many businesses have a genuine kind of risk register Mm
0: -hmm.
2: in terms of, uh, are you registering, for instance, if you're receiving communication from the same person all the time or or same several people, is that appearing on your risk matrix? Mm -hmm. Because they may pose a risk to your organization reputationally. Now, sometimes you might have to reach out and compromise and actually deal with whatever their grievances or have that conversation so that you can see whether you can pacify them. Because what we do know is that in nearly all cases, it's driven by some form of grievance. Mm-hmm. Now that could be real or perceived. So we've had scenarios where chief executive is being targeted because an ex-employee feels their pension has has disappeared, and actually, it's not true at all. It's just a perception they have, or it's miscommunication, or you know, misunderstanding a media article or something. And by actually re- reaching out and engaging with that individual, we're able to pacify the situation very quickly.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, rather than just ignoring it and thinking, oh, they'll go away.
1: How accountable do you feel we should be holding the tech companies that are obviously in charge of the channels that then reach us with those threats? So I'm talking social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. What's your stance on that? Are you an advocate for stricter rulings on those tech companies as well?
2: Yes and no is the simple answer. I think they have a responsibility. I think they have a a responsibility to improve their reporting mechanisms. Mm -hmm. I think my experience has been that very often the most harmful content is often context-driven content. And that's quite difficult for AI to pick up, particularly when we're thinking about every culture around the world. Even in the UK, Something that's said in Manchester can mean something very different when it's said in London. So, in order to accurately kind of manage that without suppressing freedom of speech and expression, which again is different in every country in the world in terms of mm. the tolerance around there, I think we're asking probably too much at sometimes. Mm. My personal view is we go back again to people, um, and I think you know we 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 dealing with people here. I think we need to make it the consequences of people's actions more relevant to what they're doing. Yes. So, and, and also more immediate. So my view has been for some time that rather than saying to somebody, right, you're banned from Facebook or you're banned from Twitter, etc. Um, my personal view is we should be saying you're banned from the internet. Because and I make the analogy that certainly in the UK, if you are driving a car and you're doing it whilst you're drunk, or you're doing it recklessly and dangerously you will probably have your driving license taken off you for a period of time because you are assessed to not be able competently use that piece of equipment yes i think the same should apply on on the internet
1: i feel like the internet of things is yet another dimension to this whole security and safety discussion for instance i'm hyper aware of the fact that my watch is talking to my phone is talking to my computer is, is listening to everything i'm saying yeah. But I also know that a lot of people actually aren't and, and are not aware that this has actually started happening to them. They're not aware that they're being listened to. So what do you think is the important shift in our societies that we have to make in order to deal with this responsibly?
2: Well, education, firstly. I think people need to understand, you know, that we have all these devices increasingly relying on Internet. Listen, I have a daily argument with my phone because all of a sudden, on my watch rather, all of a sudden, I'm chatting, and Siri will interrupt and say something, and I, you know, and I'm like, you know, what's it got to do with you? And, you know, so I, <laughs> I, I get this whole kind of argument. But what strikes me that when you um, you log on to a new um, website, it will often make you change your password. For instance, when you log on, mm-hmm. you have to have a new password. Interestingly, when you, certainly in the UK, and I can only speak for the UK at the moment when you get your broadband issued to you you know from whoever you're getting it from it comes with a set password and yet nobody ever changes the password
0: mm.
2: and there's no requirement to change the password it should be this is your password for the next 36 hours you need to change it in the in the next 36 hours mm. because we don't do that so i think there's some educational needs around that there are devices you can use that you know can minimize your um, in terms of external hacking into your internet thing. Certainly, when, in the stalking environment, we've seen a great deal of that. Where people are now, I mean, every bit of stalking I now deal with is, is cyber stalking. Um, you know, so that's I mean, people don't tend to be looking through people's windows now. They they don't need to. They look through the window of their webcam or their TV or something. So that's again, you know, it, it's about changing your password regularly. It's about using VPNs so that actually you can hide where you are and people can't access your IP address. It's about understanding that, you know, if there is a breakdown in relationships and people move in and out, don't just change the locks, change all your passwords Mm -hmm. so that that individual can't actually then hack back into your systems and, you know, make you think you're going mad because your answer machine's going off at three in the morning or something. So I think this, again, it comes down to people. Again, it comes down to processes and just, you know, doing those simple things. Sometimes I think we just need some checklists about, you know, welcome to your new home. Here's a few things you need to do you know or, you know welcome to your new piece of tech this is what you need to do you need to be making sure you've done this this and this so again i think it's about education it's about compliance it's about recognizing the risks
1: I mean, Philip, thank you so much for telling us about, I guess, how to feel safe, but also be safe through different patterns of behavior in the 21st century. I hope that a lot of our listeners can implement some of the things that you've just said, like quite quickly in their organizations, but also in their private lives. I love the tips that you gave about the eternal discussion around changing your password, which seems such an easy thing to do. And yet so few people actually do it. Uh, Fantastic advice. And, And thank you so much for being on the Family Business Voice with us today.
2: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.